Professor Butler describes this moment as a restoration, a restoration of an imagined past. And in this imagined past, all people with uteruses were women, all women were wives, all wives were mother. Mm. Now, of course, that's racialized, right? Because Black people with uteruses have never had the luxury of just being wives and mothers. Hi, I'm Brittany, and this is For Colored Nerds, the weekly show where we peel back the layers of Black culture that we rarely discuss in mixed company. On June 24th, 2022, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Since that day, Americans across the country have been mobilized to defend access to abortion, while also urging politicians to codify access to not just abortion, but privacy. At the center of this debate has been UC Berkeley law professor Kiara Bridges, who spoke at the Senate hearing after the decision was made. Eric and I brought Professor Bridges on the show to talk about what's at stake for Black communities with this ruling, how the right to privacy has always been tenuous for marginalized communities, and what folks can do on their own time to stay informed. Stay tuned. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Kiara Bridges. Thank you so much and welcome to For Colored Nerds. Well, thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure to be here. It is truly an honor for us to have you. Before we get into the why we brought you here, I'd love to talk just a little bit about the how you got here. So, you know, doing some research as always. And I watched your lecture at Harvard where you told a bit of your story. Everything about your life kind of feels like it leads you to the work that you're doing right now from, you know, your family's history to your hopes as a child. And I'm, I'm just curious if you could say a little bit about what you do and the legacy that you feel like you do that in. So what do I do? I'm a professor of law. I work at UC Berkeley in the School of Law, and my area of expertise is reproductive justice. And so I analyze the intersection of race, class, and reproductive rights. I pay attention to the law, but I also have a PhD in anthropology. So I'm interested in how law looks like in people's lives. So like the black letter law, the laws that are in codes and the laws that are in the Constitution or in the Supreme Court's reporters, that law as articulated looks very different on the ground. And so I'm very interested in investigating the space between the law on the books and the law on the ground. And so I focus a lot on pregnancy. You know, my earliest writings were about pregnancy terminations. So I was interested in the law of abortion, the regulation of abortion care. 
But I also very much concern myself when uh, pregnancies are wanted, when they're carried to term. And so I'm interested in childbirth. I'm interested in parenting. So reproductive justice is a very broad framework. And so I'm interested in all facets of that framework. And I analyze the law of it as well as, uh, you know, the cultural expressions of the law in people's lives. Um, and I came to that. I think I, I like the way you describe it. I think this is, I was kind of destined to do this work. My uncle, James, Bridges. I call him Uncle Jay. I love Uncle Jay. Um, He was the first board certified um, Black obstetrician in Miami, Florida. So he graduated from med school the same year that Medicaid, Medicare, that legislation was passed. And so in order to receive federal money from this program, hospitals couldn't discriminate on the basis of race anymore. So my uncle was the beneficiary of that anti-discrimination law, right? So he was able to train in a program in Miami, um, the first black resident there. He trained in obstetrics in this hospital, Jackson Memorial Hospital. So that meant that all the black people wanted to to have my (laughs) uncle deliver their babies. I mean, he delivered over 10,000 babies by the time he retired. And when I tell you he delivered like a whole bunch of black babies like my entire life is filled with encountering people who my <laughs> uncle delivered <laughs> so I went to Spelman College and there's a girl on my on my floor and I was like hey what's up she's like what's up where are you from I'm like you know South Florida she's like oh I'm from Miami I was like word long story short my uncle delivered her like <laughs> And she ended up being my best friend. So, yeah, it's like I'm kind of destined to be concerned about pregnancy. I care very deeply about pregnant folks, and I specifically care about marginalized pregnant folks, the folks Mm. who people don't want them to be pregnant, people who understand their pregnancies to be a social problem. You know, people who think that they're giving birth to the next generation of criminals and rapists and welfare queens. Like, those are the people who I concern myself most with in my work. You mentioned, and and to give backstory, you were trying to explain, like, why you got the Ph.D. that you did. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that, like, the law is very concerned with, like, economic structures and kind of, like, I think, organizational stuff. But Mm -hmm. it hadn't really been concerned with, I think, culture. And that you had an interest in kind of how those two things intersect, particularly because of how they affect marginalized people. And, you know, before we get into it, considering that's what we're about to be talking about, I was wondering, could you say a little bit more about that intersection and, and how you think about it? In law school, I was reading these cases, these famous constitutional law cases, the Supreme Court's interpreting the Constitution. And motherhood and pregnancy were kind of described in these like flowery terms, right? Motherhood is like this um, incredible sacrifice and we value people who dedicate themselves to this journey of pregnancy and childbirth and parenting and families are so important to the strength of the nation, right? It was just like this very, you know, justices, you know, they be on one sometimes. And so, you know, <laughs> they they describe pregnancy and parenthood in these, you know, just kind of poetic and beautiful ways. And no one what I knew already, right? I was young in, in law school. I was 20 years old. Knowing what I knew, I knew that wasn't the whole story. Like, I knew that everybody's pregnancy isn't celebrated. And I knew that not all mothers were valued. And I knew that even back then, I knew that the state did a good job of taking kids away from parents that they didn't deem fit. So, 
I was interested in investigating, I call it the space, right? Like like the space between law as articulated and like pregnancy as it is conceptualized in the law versus pregnancy on the ground. Low-income people, undocumented people, people with disabilities, people of color, right? Our pregnancies aren't understood in the same way. <laughs> like our pregnancies aren't celebrated. Our pregnancies aren't understood as like this apotheosis of self, like the best moment, um, the best parts of yourself can be reproduced in children. So I wanted to really investigate that space, right? How our cultural, political um, understandings of pregnancy diverge from the law's yeah. depiction of pregnancy and, and parenting. So on June 24th, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade a 1973 legal case that made unduly restrictive state regulation of abortion unconstitutional. Since the ruling, many politicians have pushed legislation forward to bar access to not just abortion, but even contraceptives. How would you characterize the moment we're in right now with regard to access to abortion care in America? So I've been trying to figure it out myself. Like we're living history right now. And I'm trying to figure out what this historical moment is and what it means. And I think the a framing that has that has resonated with me greatly was proposed by one of my colleagues here at UC Berkeley, Judith Butler. Um, and Professor Butler describes this moment as a restoration, a restoration of an imagined past. And in this imagined past, all people with uteruses were women, all women were wives, all wives were mother. Mm. Now, of course, that's racialized, right? Because yeah. Black people with uteruses have never had the luxury of just being wives and mothers, right? We also had to be field labor. You know, we also had to be mm. caretakers of other people's kids, right? So this, this mm. project of restoration is racialized. The regressive forces that are ascendant in this particular sociopolitical moment are trying to restore our country to an imagined past where gender norms, were respected, where Black people knew their place, right? So, like, I mm -hmm. let's not forget what happened last summer, right? Last summer, I spent yeah. hours of my life that I cannot get back trying to explain what critical race theory is. Oh my right? God. I spent hours of my <laughs> life breath that I cannot reclaim, trying to tell people that critical race theory is an advanced legal theory. And when Republican legislatures are talking about kindergartners are learning critical race theory, that they're lying to you, right? So I think it's important for us not to disconnect what happened last summer with what happened this summer in terms of Roe being overturned, right? We're reclaiming, we're restoring this past where Black people weren't talking about anti-racism. And if they were, nobody was listening. Mm. We're trying to restore a past where LGBTQ people were erased, right? Remember that past when um, we could criminalize people for having sex with somebody of the same sex? We want to restore that. Remember that past when trans people were completely erased, right? Like we act like we act like they just did not exist. Um, and if we acknowledge their existence, it was in order to paint them as deviant and so therefore killable. We are in a moment where folks with power are restoring a past that excludes so many groups that had come to get like a modicum of power and voice in our society. Immigrants, 
Native people, oh, the Supreme Court is going to hear the Indian Child Welfare Act that is challenging the constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act this upcoming term. Um, that act was passed in order to keep Native kids with Native families because the country had done a beautiful job of attempting to kill Native people by separating them from their children, right? So we're restoring a past when the only groups that were visible and had power were cis male white <laughs> men without any right. um, obvious disabilities, certainly um, native born. And so I think that's what we need to understand, the Dobbs decision. It is a product of this project of restoration. Wow. It's, it's so interesting to think about it like that. And, and I feel like there are a bunch of places where having these conversations where past, like you said, that was imagined that was not real and actually pretty traumatic for right, if you right, if right. you look like us. Right. How we are at this moment where it can feel like so much of that is deemed as like what actually happened. Like it feels like there, like this has been, anytime you go back, almost all of the roots uh, or so many of the roots of abortion access or restriction, abortion restrictions and kind of restrictions on health care is we find it, the anti-blackness like at the root of it, okay? <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's like, oh, oh, oh there it is. <laughs> I know yeah. I was going to find the anti-blackness. There it is. It's at the bottom. Right. Yeah. But it's, it, the thing that I guess I'm struggling with is like so much of it now feels like, okay, we know so many more people have like an ownership of kind of what has happened. But it, it does seem like at the same time, there's been a collective forgetting. Mm -hmm. And so I guess like how do you like what are the things that play that have allowed us to get so caught up on terms almost? Because it yeah. feels like this happened this way. This happened that way. Right. And like the argument feels in the middle and black people lose. It's important for your listeners to understand feminists of color, black feminists specifically, have always understood abortion access, abortion rights as essential to racial justice, right? So there will be a whole bunch of folks out there who will tell you abortion is a white woman's issue. Abortion is something that only, you know, white women care about. And that might seem true in as much as the biggest reproductive rights organizations in this country are helmed by affluent cis women, cis white women, and they care seemingly only about abortion, right? So because the Planned Parenthoods of the world, because the NARALs of the world have made abortion their issue, and because the faces and the leadership and the funders of those organizations are affluent cis white women, it makes it seem like, well, abortion is a white women's issue. And so it's so important for everyone to understand that Black feminists have always said that abortion access is essential to racial justice. And this is because Black feminists have always recognized that reproductive coercion, third parties controlling whether you become pregnant in the first instance, whether you carry that pregnancy to term, whether you become a parent, whether you can parent your child, that has always been a vehicle by which third parties have exacted control over Black people and people of color. And so if reproductive control has been a tool and an expression of racial injustice and racism, denying reproductive control has been a tool and an expression of racism and racial injustice, then Black people being able to actually determine whether they will become pregnant, carry that pregnancy to term, and parent the kids as they see fit, that is actually an expression and perhaps even a tool of racial justice. So it's important for folks to understand that, that this country has a long history a long history of exerting reproductive control over marginalized people. Black folks 
Indigenous folks, Latinx folks have been subjected to coerced sterilizations. They call them Mississippi mm. appendectomies, right? Mm. Where Black women would go into clinics in the South thinking that they were going to have a tonsillectomy, would come out without their fallopian tubes. Yeah. Native uh, Indian Health Services, Native women were forcibly sterilized. 40%, some figures have it at 40% of Native people with the capacity for pregnancy were sterilized through federal funds through um, Indian Health Services, many of them without their consent. Some figures say 25% of people with a capacity for pregnancy on the island of Puerto Rico was sterilized during the 1970s, mm. right? So feminists of color have long understood that there are third parties <laughs> who would be interested in denying us the ability to determine whether we are going to give birth, to determine whether we are going to be able to parent our kid. And so it is like almost radical to propose that we would make those decisions for ourselves. In, in the leaked draft of the Dobbs opinion from back in May, Justice Samuel Alito stated in a footnote, some such supporters have been motivated by a desire to suppress the size of the African-American population, meaning supporters for access to abortion. Right. But it is beyond dispute <laughs> that Roe has had that demographic effect. Right, right, right. A highly disproportionate percentage of aborted fetuses are Black, end quote. He seemed to be pushing forth this idea mm-hmm. that seems erroneous to me, uh, <laughs> that access to abortion means killing Black babies. Right. Talk to us about the roots of that idea and why it's harmful. Justice Clarence Thomas um, wrote this concurrence in this case called Box versus Planned Parenthood. It was a couple years ago. What this argument is based in is is the fact that Black people have higher rates of abortion than their white counterparts. Um, Right now, Black people um, turn to abortion care at between three and four times the rate as their white counterparts. That is undisputed, right? Every statistic that I've seen supports that, right? That we have higher Mm -hmm. rates of abortion. Is that the product of a genocidal plot? (laughs) Is that a function of some diabolical plan by which eugenicists are like, how can we exterminate the black race? Our higher rates of abortion are a function of structural racism, period, (laughs) right? Our higher rates of, of abortion are a function of The fact that we disproportionately bear the burdens of poverty in this country, impoverished people have higher rates of unintended pregnancy because they have a harder time accessing basic health care, but also reproductive health care. So they have a harder time getting their hands on contraception, effective contraception. They have a harder time, you know, getting appointments with gynecologists who can prescribe contraception to them. There's also evidence that Black people have higher rates of intimate partner violence. Um, Black women are more likely to be survivors of sexual assault. They're also more likely to be uh, subject to reproductive coercion by which a partner essentially tries to trick them into getting pregnant, whether it's, you know, sabotaging condom usage or just like hassling them not to use, con- you know, contraception. And that is a function of, of poverty as well, right? So if you can't control the conditions under which you have sex, um, you mm. can't insist upon the contraception that you might have access to. And you might not have access to the contraception in the first instance because contraception is hard to access because of one's marginalization, right? And also, so when 
we ask folks who have terminated pregnancies, hey, why did you terminate a pregnancy? Um, the mm-hmm. most frequently cited reason is I couldn't afford to have a kid at this time. I couldn't afford to have an additional kid at this time. I couldn't afford it, right? That is what our prior abortion rates are a reflection of, right? Marginalization, vulnerability, structural racism. I also think it's important to note that um, there's a whole bunch of states out there that are not providing sexual education to their to their students, yeah. right? Mississippi, yeah. I'm looking at you. Like you asked the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade. You don't even provide sex ed in your schools, right? So we are failing people. And I feel like our, our societal failure to equip people with the means to control whether they become pregnant in the first instance is reflected in the higher rates of unintended pregnancies and higher rates of abortion among black folks. Again, that's not genocide. What that is, is an indictment of the conditions by which people, Black people, disproportionately find themselves saddled with an unwanted pregnancy. But that's not a genocide. Genocides are what we have done and attempted to do against Native peoples, right? Like, let's talk, if y'all want to talk about genocide, let's talk about that. It's a rhetorical move that obscures a lot of the violence that leads to higher rates of unintended pregnancies and abortion. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Chapter One, Wayfair welcomes you to the neighborhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the neighborhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter Two. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home.
so much of this conversation about abortion access is connected to a term that, to be honest, I hadn't heard as often until like maybe about a year ago. And that's our individual right to privacy, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that like legal concept. And that's a topic you've written about extensively. Mm -hmm. In, you know, 2017, you released a book called The Poverty of Privacy Rights. Mm -hmm. And so many people don't kind of know what this right to privacy is and like how it kind of underpins so many of the things that we are fighting for right now, including abortion access. Can you talk to us a bit about that concept and uh, and just kind of like why it's so important to the, some of the things we're talking about right now? Privacy is a legal term of art. In law, it doesn't mean precisely what lay folks might think of um, as privacy. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, something that you do in secret, nobody knows about it type of thing. Privacy is a legal concept that has come to reference specifically matters involving sex, reproduction, and family. And so way back in the early 1900s, the Supreme Court started protecting rights around family, right? Specifically the right to raise one's child as one sees fit. And they started Mm -hmm. interpreting this right, and eventually they labeled it. This right is called the right of privacy. And so we have a couple of cases, some very important cases, Griswold versus Connecticut, which was decided in the mid-1960s in which the court protected the right to access contraception under this sort of rubric of, of privacy. We had Another case, Eisenstadt versus Baird, which also used um, this rubric of privacy to protect the right of single people to access contraception because Griswold was about married folks. And so Eisenstadt expanded that right so that single folks could enjoy it. And then Roe came down in 1973 protecting abortion rights under this rubric of privacy. But it didn't end there because in 2003, the court decided Lawrence versus Texas, in which the court said that, you know, LGBTQ folks um, have a right to have consensual sex with an adult. (laughs) Because again, prior to Lawrence, um, Texas had criminalized same-sex sodomy. That's what they called it, right? And Mm -hmm. we had this revelation um, in 2003 where the court was like, you know what? I think the Constitution protects the right of people to have consensual sex with an adult, even if that adult is a member of the same sex. And then in 2015, we had Obergefell versus Hodges, in which the court said, I think that it also protects the right of of people to marry somebody of the same sex, right? Mm-hmm. So privacy is pretty important. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> when the, I would say so. <laughs> right. So when the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade, it calls into question the legitimacy of this right to privacy. And specifically, the method of constitutional interpretation that the court uses in Dobbs is such that it calls into question whether we will have a continued right to access contraception, whether we'll have a continued right to have sex with somebody of the same sex, the continued right. I should also mention the method of constitutional interpretation that the court uses in Dobbs also calls into question whether we'll have a continued right to be free of coerced sterilizations. Um, There was a case that was decided in 1927 in which the Supreme Court was like, yep, you can. Virginia wanted to um, sterilize against a person's consent a woman who they said was an imbecile. 
And the uh, Supreme Court legitimated yeah. it, right? It's a case called Buck versus Bell. Carrie Buck was sterilized without her, her consent because Virginia said she's an imbecile and three generations of imbeciles are enough. That's a direct quote from the Supreme Court opinion. Yeah. So if we're trying to divine the meaning of the Constitution in the way that the majority in Dobbs tries to divine the meaning of a Constitution by looking to what we valued in 1868 when the 14th Amendment was ratified, then all of these things, right, uh, LGBTQ rights, the right to be free from core sterilizations, the right to access contraception, right, all of those things are called into question. So privacy mm. is important and we should be afraid about what this court is capable of doing when it comes to, again, this project of restoration, right, returning us to this yeah. imagined past. I just want to mention one last thing. The Poverty of Privacy Rights, my second book, was about how privacy rights exist for marginalized people in theory alone. Because when one is marginalized, um, when one is low income, when one is a person of color, those folks have never had the right to parent their kids, right? It's called catching a case, right? Like CPS mm -hmm. knocks on, on low income, people of color, their, their doors are constantly being kicked down by CPS investigating, right? And yeah. families of color, what they need is support. They don't need state violence in the form of family separation. You know, looking to the future, the midterm elections are approaching very, very soon. And access to abortion is one of the most important issues that voters are thinking about. What's at stake this election season with regard to abortion rights? What I do know is that now that the GOP has what it wants and what it's been fighting for since 1973, when Roe was decided, since 1973, the GOP has made overturning Roe kind of its cause. And so now that it has what it wants, and now that Republicans are witnessing just how unpopular that is, <laughs> I think it'll be interesting whether they're held to the fire as they should be, right? They're advancing policies and law that a majority of, of Americans disagree with. And so if democracy is true, they should suffer the penalties um, in the midterm elections. And so um, I think some of them know that, and that's why they're sort of not celebrating in the streets, as you'd think they would. Yeah. <laughs> They've been fighting to have this decision overturned for 50 years. Um, a lot of them are muted, right, because they know that they might reap the political consequences. Also, some of them don't care that uh, mm. these are politically unpopular um, laws and policies that are, they're advancing because they know that they've done a good job of disenfranchising franchising um, folks, right? Like Texas has the most <laughs> restrictive voting mm. laws um, in the state. Um, and so the legislators there know that the people who are opposed to regressive abortion bans really don't have a vote, right? They've been gerrymandered out of existence. Um, they've been denied the ability to cast a ballot because they need a voter ID that um, is difficult to get to because it might be a couple of counties away. They might have to pay a fee, right? Making it hard for low-income people. They've made it, they've done a very good job of ensuring that only those who have some degree of capital are able to cast ballots. So they might not reap, and by they, Republicans might not reap 
the political fallout that they ought to reap by advancing laws and policies that, again, a majority of Americans disagree with because they know mm. that our democracy is kind of only quasi-democratic. We've disenfranchised so many, so many folks. I was going to say to that end, September 23rd, Biden promised to codify Roe if two more Democrats were elected to the Senate. You know, I think for a lot of people that sounds attractive. I'm curious if you have the experience that we did, which was like, pretty turned off to just like the the feeling of something as urgent right. as reproductive uh, justice and rights kind of being used almost as a bargaining chip. How do you navigate frustrations at the political level when mm-hmm. your goals are so much bigger? Yeah. The Democratic Party has sold out <laughs> people of color, uh, marginalized people time and time and time again. And so... Am I foolish to believe the Democratic Party will, in the future, protect my interests and the interests of the, of people I care about? Right. So that's that's definitely a question. And then I look over at the Republican Party, <laughs> <laughs> and then I and then I look at you know I just look at insurrectionists. Um, I look at yeah. folks who tell me that. 2020 election was stolen. And I look at folks who say that Democrats are pedophiles and drink children's blood. And I look at folks who would deny trans people the health care that they need. And I look at folks who would just commit violences that we believe um, this country ought not to commit anymore. And I say to myself, Let me cast my ballot for the Democrats this time around. Do we have a meaningful choice given our two-party system and how they don't jump the shark? Like, you know, the Republican Party is, is, they're just on something else. And I think that at this point, we don't, really have a choice besides supporting Democrats. I also will say there is there is something to Biden's promise that if we get two more senators in, in the Senate, um, then we could codify Roe. The Women's Health Protection Act would codify Roe. It has already passed the House, and we already know the makeup of the Senate. Um, we got some holdouts, some Democratic holdouts, Democrats that act a whole lot like Republicans. And so if we just had the votes, um, we, you know, the Women's Health Protection Act could get passed. Be that as it may, right, we know that Roe was not, it's better than what we have now, but it also left a whole bunch of marginalized people behind. The right protected in Roe was a negative right to access um, abortion in the market. It was a right to purchase abortion services without government intervention and obstruction. Mm. And so that's really only meaningful if you have the means to purchase abortion Mm. care in the market. And so, again, the most marginalized folks have never had that means. So codifying Roe would be better than what we had now, but really not something that is the ceiling when you're interested in reproductive reproductive justice, right, broadly. So I say all that to say, um, I don't see a choice. I think that (laughs) my grand theory is we have to abolish the Electoral College, which would allow for the proliferation of more parties in this country. The two-party system is quite literally killing us. Yeah. Quite literally killing us. And I would love to see the development of parties that would actually 
represent the interests of marginalized people. Um, the Democrats are supposed to be doing it. But like I said, we've seen them not do it um, for generations. <laughs> Yo, you're not the only one looking uh, forward to, to something like that. But I also am not holding my breath. Right. Question, I want to come back to something you, you touched on a little earlier when you were talking about CRT and even just in talking about kind of reproductive health and, and justice. You talked about college campuses as kind of in the work of specifically black women and, and black feminist women kind of always thinking through some of the theory and the thinking behind a lot of these problems that we've been facing for decades. Basically, they've been there, right, right, right. <laughs> for lack of a better word, doing the work and doing a lot of the thinking. I guess I'm curious, like looking at the reaction to something like CRT, so much of it was at the secondary right. elementary school level, like, which is wild. Yeah. But a lot of it was also connected to kind of what has felt like an ongoing campaign to limit progressive speech on college campuses. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I guess I'm curious how much those two might directly be mm -hmm. connected. It, you know, if you see any connection in terms of trying to limit that speech as specifically limiting spaces where black women are mm -hmm. trying to do a lot of this kind of advanced thought work, yeah, <laughs> you know, not yeah, even just yeah. thought work, you know, a lot yeah. of the, kind of mm -hmm. the planning for how we might make our society better. And how much of that do you see? Is there a there there? I think it's a productive sort of avenue of inquiry. So let me tell you what the attack against CRT did do. The attack against CRT made people wary <laughs> about self-identifying as a critical race theorist, right? I got tenure, y'all. I don't care. I can fully claim myself as a critical race theorist, but untenured folks, right? Folks who don't have a job just yet, right? They might be entering the academic market. I, I mean, I would advise them to just be careful, you know, lately. do the work, absolutely, do the work, do the critical race theoretical analysis, but be careful as identifying yourself as such because you kind of put a target on your back. Um, you kind mm. of um, make yourself searchable on the web um, so that mm. people find you and criticize you and attack you um, um, unjustifiably. So I don't think it silenced people, the attack on critical race theory, but it definitely made people wary. Now, what I did in response to the rational fear that people may have felt was I leaned into it. Mm. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> because, because the, what the attacks on critical race theory revealed to me was that we were doing something right. Like, we were unsettling folks. We were disrupting stuff. Y'all so scared that y'all passing bills to silence us, to make sure that kids aren't exposed to thought that might be progressive? Okay, so I'm going to keep producing mm. this thought, right? So, yes, I agree that there is a there there. You laid out so much. Yeah. <laughs> you laid out so much for us in this conversation about this moment where we are with a stake. For people who want to learn more about the topics we've discussed today, what do you suggest they do? Access to safe and legal abortion care for all Americans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is called for colored nerds, right? <laughs> yes. Read, 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 yes. read. Um, there's so much out there that'll help 
folks who want to know, it'll help them connect the dots between this historical moment and the past that we like to believe is like, oh, it's so long ago. The past is present. And so I love Dorothy Roberts. I think she's amazing. Start with the Bible, which is killing the black body. Um, she'll lay yes. it out. Um, yes, plain. I'm like, I'm looking around. Right. I'm like, I know I have it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Where's my copy? It's somewhere. It's always arm's length, right? That's a great place to start. Um, Loretta Ross, who is uh, the mother of the reproductive justice framework um, and the movement. Um, she has a primer out with uh, Ricky Solinger, who's a historian. It's called Reproductive Justice, an Introduction. Read it. Tells you everything you need to know to get started with reproductive justice. Well, that we can do. <laughs> if, can I sneak one more question? Of course. You? Of course. Yep. In addition to all this like all your work, all this depth. <laughs> like you are also a professional dancer. I imagine right now is a busy time on the law side <laughs> right. of your job. Right. Are you still finding time to dance? <laughs> I cannot do the law thing without dance. Dance makes the law thing possible for me. It's the condition of possibility, right? To mm. use a very technical um, sort of academic term. It mm-hmm. makes it so that it feels worthwhile to do the law. So yes, I dance. Um, I dance every day. I was like, I was trying to keep myself from asking you like, <laughs> like a so Google calendar I'm question because I'm just like, how? So like, what? When? How? Like, that's. What, I'm just trying to figure it out. Like, morning what, person. Like, like is it before work? Is it lunch break? Is it, 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 is, when, it is. when is it? It's the morning. So I do yoga first thing in the morning. I go to ballet class and my ballet class either begins at 10 in the morning or 11, depending on which class I take. Um, I finish Mm -hmm. either at 11.30 or 12.30 and then I hightail it over to the law school, grab me some lunch, got my little iced tea, got a little caffeine. Um, And then I do the law thing. Either, you know, on the days that I teach, I teach my classes. The law thing. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Casual. Like, what? No. Yeah, it's all about discipline and organization in order to do all the things that I I, I love to do over the course of my life <laughs> in the course of a day. Wow, wow. We cannot say thank you enough. Seriously, we were both <laughs> thank like- Thank you so much. In the, in the prep, just like, wow. And she did this. And she also <laughs> yeah, exactly. did that. And oh, was she this. said that. Okay. <laughs> so seriously, <laughs> thank you so much. No, it's a joy. It's a joy to talk to you all. Thank you for inviting me into your community. For Colored Nerds was created by me, Eric Eddings, and Brittany Luce. It's supported by a production team at Stitcher, including producer Alexis Williams, story editor Gianna Palmer, social producer Elise Ellis, and engineer Marcus Hom. Our theme music is by Willie Green. And look, y'all, we love hearing from you so, so much. So please shout us out on Instagram at For Colored Nerds, on Twitter at For Colored Nerds. You can find us everywhere at For Colored Nerds. And tell your friends, too, We love it also when we're like, yo, my homie, cousin, best friend told me to listen to this episode and it was bomb. And then I subscribed. That's like my favorite song. So please do your your friend, do your community a favor and share an episode and tell us which one it was. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. 
the early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.